We're going to make a turn today, if you will. Um, we've been in chapter one of, our, of Mark and the gospel of Mark. And, uh, and we're, as we get into chapter two, there's something that's really important. There's this turn that begins to take place. And what we've learned from chapter one, as we begin, is uh, Jesus has been given this new and ultimate authority in his teaching. Like he has this authoritative teaching about him. And that leads us to understand from chapter one that he also had an authority over demons. He had an authority over darkness. He had an authority over illness. He even had an authority over the evil one while he was in temptation in the wilderness. There's a consistent theme that Mark is trying to set up in the first chapter of his gospel. I hope you heard it, that we're, we're grasping as we make a turn towards chapter two. What was that theme? Jesus has what? Authority. That's right. He has authority. And as we move into chapter two of the gospel, this is so important. Jesus could be a helpful person if he had, if he was all those things. If he, was, if he had authority over illness, if he had authority over sickness and demons, he would be helpful to us. But we're going to get in today to the passage that, that really promotes and gives prominence to why he was here. Because if he didn't have authority over sin, if he didn't have authority over the grave like we just sang about, then he's nothing more than helpful. He's not the healer. Amen? If he doesn't have authority over sin in the grave, then he doesn't fix our ultimate problem. He just helps along the way. And, and I was toying with reading from this, this excerpt from this book, and then we sang here again, and, and uh, we sang those words about the middle and that I'm not enough. And, and Aaron, you know, you led us through that, and then we sang Living Hope. And Aaron gives me a lot of slack sometimes about, like, about how I might preach too long. So if, uh, if I read from this X word, it, you know, if I go a little longer, Aaron, it's your fault, okay? But I have to read from this now. And so here's, here's what I, this is from Your God is Too Safe by Mark Buchanan. I, would, I just want to uh, catch something here that Mark is trying to put down, and it's really, really good. How many of you believe that we have a tendency to um, make it a strange habit of treating God as safe. It is a strange habit of ours that we fling so widely to extremes but rarely find the middle. God's wrath and sovereignty we easily caricature as tyranny. And God's kindness and tender mercies we just as easily transmute into mere niceness. Meanwhile, the God who actually is, the God whose ways of speaking and acting and being are disclosed to us in the scriptures continued in Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth, to come among that which is his own, and before his own they did not receive him because they did not recognize him, as John 1, 10, 11, and 14 tells us. Scripture elsewhere tells us that the ruler of the power of the prince of the air has blinded our eyes to the truth in Ephesians. But one of the main ways the devil has done this is through the cult of the safe God. The safe God has pretty much killed the power of recognition within us. And so when the real God comes in our midst, we mostly don't even bother to look up. The safe God has no power to console us in grief or shake us from the complacency or rescue us from the pit. He just putters in his garden, smiles benignly, waves now and then, and mostly just spends a lot of time in his room doing puzzles. Who would leave 
a place of numbness to find or follow this kind of God. The excuse I hear most often from people uh, continued in a conf- who have continued in confessed sin is this. I think God understands. The kind of God I worship isn't all hung up about this issue. It's as though God were a half-daft old uncle, hair sprouting out of his ears, a bit runny at the nose, winking at our little pranks and pedicules. Well, that's nice, he would say. But God isn't nice. And God isn't safe. God is a consuming fire, though he can care about the sparrow and the embodiment of his care is rarely doting and pampering. God's main business is not ensuring that you and I get the best parking spots close to the mall. Or that the bed sheets that we went to the mall to find in the color we want are miracle on sale that day. His main business is about making you and me holy. And that is an impossibility if we do not give him the authority to do so. So people respond to authority differently. I mean, some respond with compliance and some have no problem with authority. While others, while others do have problem. Some people have a tendency to challenge authority, bucking it at every turn. Whether it be their, because of their sordid background or simply their sin nature rebelling, they just do not work well within the hierarchy and structure that's before them. Either won't submit as to not be controlled by another, or they themselves believe they must be the leader, and thus they don't go along. Pick your poison. But either one is poison. Be clear. When we do not give authority to Jesus in our lives, when we simply stiff harm him at every turn and we buck him at every turn, he is not our Lord, thus he cannot be our Savior. We all still with me? Anyone here knows someone who has a trouble with authority? Not you, but a friend. So turning to Mark 2, um, we're going to look at three responses to Jesus' authority today. The response of the people, the response of the paralytic, the response of the Pharisees. So in uh, chapter 2, verse 1, it says, When he entered Capernaum again after some days, it was reported that he was at home. If you read this from the New King James, it says that he was in the house. So many people gathered together that there was no more room, not even in the doorway, and he was speaking the word to them. They came bringing a paralytic man carried by four of them. Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. After digging through it, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. But some of the scribes were sitting there questioning within their hearts, Why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sin but God alone? Right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit what they were thinking within themselves, said to them, Why are you thinking these things in your heart? Which is easier? To say that to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk. But so that you know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he got up, took the mat, and went out in front of everyone. 
As a result, they were all astounded and gave God glory, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Do you see the authority in this passage? Where do we see the authority in this passage? Well, um, I want to go back to the first two verses of it. Okay. When he entered Capernaum again after some days. That's important. Uh, why would he be coming back to Capernaum? Okay. Well, um, preceding this at the end of Mark 1, a place that we jumped over because it was, it was another place of freedom that he healed someone. But at the end of chapter uh, of the end of chapter Mark, it says in verse 40, Then a man with leprosy came to him and on his knees begged him, If you're willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. I am willing, he told him, be made clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Then he sternly warned him and sent him away at once, telling him, See that you say nothing to anyone. But go to show yourself to the priest and offer what Moses commanded you for cleansing. Do what is lawful before your priest. As a testimony to them. Yet, instead, he began to go out and proclaim it widely and spread the news. And with the result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly. But he was forced into the deserted places and the people would come out to him from everywhere. So, at the end of chapter 1, we see why Jesus has left Capernaum for a moment. Why he's taken off, where it says for days. Some, some scholars believe this is a period of months where he's had to go out in the wilderness. He cannot enter cities or he'll be swarmed because of what he's done. And the testimony of this man is what, alongside everything else that we witnessed Jesus do to this point through Mark 1 is made Jesus widely famous so much so that everyone wants to see what he'll do next. So he came back to Capernaum after some time. Reading on in that same two verses, when he entered Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was home. So many people gathered, as was expected, that there was no more room in the house, not even in the doorway, and he was speaking the word to them. Remember, we understand that Jesus has an authoritative teaching. We learned that in chapter 1, that the way he teaches is different than the way that anyone else teaches. And why? Well, because Jesus' authority and his teaching leads to freedom. It leads to freedom. Whereas their authority, the scribes who are sitting there, who are listening, leads to further bondage. They were constantly reminding the people of the law and lawful practices and how they could not keep the law. And the law was heavy and weighed them down. Not just the sin nature that they realized. These are very religious people. Not just that they recognized that they were an offense to God, but they could do nothing by keeping the law accurately to appease that said God. So this teaching by their religious scribes and Pharisees was, you depend on us, you're not good enough, do whatever we ask you to do, and that's still probably not going to be good enough, but we're hopeful. And then Jesus comes in, and when he teaches, he teaches with such authority, not quoting other Pharisees, not quoting other scribes, not asking the people to choose a way or to choose a rabbi, but he puts it down, drops the mic, and says, it's me. And in that, people find a freedom, a concision, a clarity, and it, it leads straight to what Jesus is offering. And so the people feel freedom in this. And it quiets, listen, it quiets the scribes around him. He's a traveling rabbi 
who the thrust of his ministry we know in John is that he is to preach the gospel where he goes, to spread the good news that God has answered upon the prophecy that was promised of Messiah. I am he. He's answered. And he is going into the synagogue, gaining the attention of the people by the power and authority of his teaching and that by the power and authority that he has over the natural. But when he defeats the grave, and here when we see him remove sin, God alone forgives sin. All the scribes knew it. We understand that he was not just authoritative over the natural things ailing these people. He had supernatural power over the darkness and over their ultimate problem. So he was in fact answering a question. Who alone has the authority to forgive sin but God? Jesus is revealing something about himself. What was their faith in? What were, was the people's faith in? Why was the crowd so large? Because this man has an ability to do things we've never seen, and he says things we've never heard. So large, so much so that we want to be near him. We want to be as close as we possibly can when we see him. When you read on, though, we read on, it says that they came to him, verse 3, bringing a paralytic carried by four. And since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, digging through it, and lowered him on a mat which the paralytic was lying on. Now, it takes an, an amazing amount of faith and trust for the paralytic to humbly allow these people to not only carry him but to lower him. But it took an amazing amount of faith on the friends who decided this paralytic has no other options. In their day, deeply religious, you understand that they, they saw everything as either of God or not of God. And so if someone was stricken with a crippling condition, they were handicapped. They believed that the deaf were demon-possessed. So this, when all illness came from the dark side of things. So it was deeply connected to spirituality. So when someone is paralytic or crippled, that means that God has smited them in their minds. And so this person has no hope, there's no option of being in relationship with other people. That this person sits at the side of the temple, the doorway, and begs for alms in hopes that someone will be gracious and generous and give them money so that he can, you know, live because he can't work. And that's what's so fascinating about this story. He has four friends that have stepped out from society, whether they knew him from birth and he was paralyzed, maybe he's deeply connected to them in some capacity, maybe he became paralyzed at some point in his life, but these were his friends. But here's the beauty of it. Their love for this friend superseded his handicap. Something that to the rest of society and culture would have ostracized him, their love for him went beyond it. It went beyond being seen with him, being noticed by him, being touched by him, sitting with him. It went beyond being in community relationship with him. And so they saw and hear of the things that Jesus is doing and they go, there is no one on the planet, no other priest is going to even come close to this man. So our only option is Jesus. And so they trust in their minds and place full authority in the power that Jesus is displaying, full authority in the authority of the teaching of Jesus. And they go, we have to get him in close proximity to Jesus because we have no other options for this friend. 
And the beauty is they saw no obstacle in it. They saw no obstacle in putting their friend next to Jesus. You got to think about this. This is a grown man. And so these four friends carry him on a mat, which he's used to being on. And they, they come carrying him because there's no way for him to get to the doorway. They see that the people are pouring out in the doorways and they can't get close. So they immediately, without even thinking about it, there's no second guessing, no question. They just start checking it out. They're observing the, the area. They throw him on their back and begin to climb. Can you imagine this? Like they throw his weight on their back, begin to climb because there's no crowd too big, no wall too high, apparently no roof through too thick. This roof was a combination of wood and mud and, and like brick and like straw and it was thick and they're digging and pounding through it. There's two things that are fascinating about this for me. And this is just, this is just me talking about it. It's free. Number one. How many of you would be humble enough to let your community carry that kind of weight? Maybe, maybe you wouldn't expect them to carry you physically because you're not crippled. You can walk on your own two feet. But how many of you have ever dealt with crippling circumstances? How many of you have ever dealt with crippling emotional or spiritual circumstances? And you actually told someone else in your community? Instead of hiding it away and holding on to it and keeping it for yourself because your stuff is just too heavy for everyone else? Anyone ever believe that lie that your stuff is just too heavy to put on someone else? Hands raised. Amen. How many of you have been a part of that spiritual community that was trying to convince someone, no, we love you, we want you, it's in confidence, we're not, we're not going and gossiping about this, we just want to know how can we help you so throw it on us, put it on us. We're going to put you in close proximity to Jesus. We want to come alongside you. Your stuff's not too heavy and there's no obstacle. There's nothing too high. There's nothing too thick. We want to carry you as you go through this time of hurt and trial. And how many of you have seen the Lord speak and move in your midst and you saw someone come to healing because they began to trust Jesus because you weren't enough, but your faith in Jesus was. So, the options were gone. There was no obstacle that stood before the friends. And then Mark 2, 5 says it like this. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Now, here's the beauty of Jesus. He sees the whole picture. Jesus always sees the whole picture. Now, we see what's immediately in front of us sometimes. But what God brings to light we oftentimes see dimly because here's the, here's the truth. Jesus could have healed this man's legs that day. He could have fixed his legs, but that man will still die one day. That man will still die one day and in his sinful state be separate from God. So he could fix his immediate need, his temporal need, his physical need, but that body is dying like your body is dying, like my body is dying. He could fix that and still have the problem of, of his spiritual state being separate from God forever. So he looks at the situation and goes, it was incredibly humble for you to let your friends carry you. It was incredibly humble for you to trust your friends to put you in this place. To, to disrupt this whole meeting, to punch the wall where stuff's fallen through on us. 
to get our attention, to put you in close proximity. You trusted your friends enough and they trusted that I was the only option for you. There was nothing else that was gonna do it and they didn't let any obstacles stand in their way to bring you to me. So because of that, I'm gonna fix your real problem. I'm gonna fix the one. Your spiritual state is now made right. Your sins are forgiven you. You'll never taste death. To be absent from the body because you will die will be present with the Lord. You are forever free. Jesus leading the people in this way, like the way he speaks here, leads people to a new outlook. He begins to help them to see that it's more than just a physical problem. It's more than just a temporal need. It is a spiritual and eternal problem and he has authority over sin in the grave. He's got authority over not just the temporal, but the eternal. And he's the only one that makes it right for us. So the people go, we have an eternal problem. Why didn't he just touch these guy's legs? He's saying something bigger that we cannot earn it. We cannot do it. There's no amount of of keeping the law that's gonna finally make it right. We have to trust his work because he's the only one that has authority over sin. He's the only one that can give eternal life, which created new opportunity. When people began to see with this look, it created opportunity for people to walk away from their old life and to follow Jesus into an altogether new one. Hello? Amen? Anyone ever experience new life, 2 Corinthians 5, like, like you move from death to life. Scripture says, don't return to your old ways. Don't return like a dog to his vomit, but live in the new life. And Jesus didn't come that you'd have just life, but life abundant, that you wouldn't just be existing, that you would benefit and breathe. So this new outlook that Jesus had to heal what was eternally wrong with us spiritually, created new opportunity for fellowship, created new opportunity for life that to this point did not exist. But you know what? Not everybody likes that. Mark 2, verse 6. But some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? I love this part. Check it out. Right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit what they were thinking within themselves and said to them, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? They didn't speak up. He just perceives their minds and hearts, which is easier to say to this paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and take your mat and walk. But so that you will know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, go home. So, number one, the Pharisees object to giving authority to Jesus. Why? Because he is challenging theirs. They object to giving authority to Jesus because he is robbing them of theirs. The religious leaders here do not want to give Jesus authority because in their teaching, the people are completely dependent on them to intercede for them to God. It's not that, it's not that they have a problem. They know God alone forgives sins. 
And sure, they believed that God could forgive sins. But in reality, before the people, they believed that God forgave sin through them alone, which put them on a place that was paramount to the people, a place where the people would have to depend on them and look to them, treat them as gods. And here, Jesus usurps them entirely and goes right past them and they are standing by, don't even say a word, can't even speak to one another about what's going on. They didn't even get a whisper out. In their minds and hearts, know what this means. This man has not only said, I forgive you, but he has done it by perceiving their thoughts before they can say anything. He doubly proves that he is God, not only because God alone forgives sins and he just did it, but that he can perceive the thoughts and minds of others and there's nowhere we can run from him. There's nowhere we can hide. Jesus hears what is going on in their mind and heart. And he hears their objection to his authority. He hears their stiff arm. He hears them challenging the fact that they don't want to put down their office. They don't want to put down their title. They don't want to submit their lives to him. They want to continue to be in control. It's kind of like, it's kind of like King David who knew that he sees our hearts and our thoughts. In Psalm 139, verse 23 to 24, it says, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way within me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Have you guys ever prayed this prayer before? Where you say, God, if there's anything in me that offends you, that, that is that proverbial stiff arm, I may not even be saying anything out loud or doing anything on the outside. If it is even in my thought life, let it stop. And here's the thing that's beautiful about what Jesus shows as he perceives this about these, these scribes. He is showing his omniscience and omnipresence simultaneously. He is saying, there's not a place that you can outrun my love. There's not a place that you can outrun my authority. But for those who are submitted to Christ's authority, those who are in Christ, here's the beauty. When we submit to him, there's no sin that can now touch us. Hello? There's no sin that can now touch us. And quite honestly, it has been submitted and cast as far as the east is from the west. While we still confess sin when we come under conviction, how many of you have sinned since you came to Jesus at once? And God made you aware of that and you had to come to him and lay that before him. But we have no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So there we live a guilt-free life. Isn't that awesome? Because of the work of Jesus, we have a living hope that we just sang about. So... In this passage, Jesus, to prove his authority over sin, just does both. He looks at the scribes and says, hey, what's going to prove it to you? I'll prove it. So, um, so that you know that I have authority and that I'm God, get up and walk. Your sins are forgiven you. I, I just did that. You're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. But go ahead, get up and go home. Celebrate with your family and your friends that loved you enough to put you in close proximity to me. I love how the commentators put it like this. This is as a proof of his power to forgive sins, something we cannot see. Jesus heals the paralytic, something we can see. I love it. We have a tendency to uh, respond to Jesus. And in this passage, we see four responses to Jesus. 
we see a response to specifically the authority of Jesus, not only over sin, but the, the, the person of Jesus. But the reason Jesus came was because he had that authority over sin. And the first of those is this one, the friends. They trusted Jesus alone was the paralytic friend's answer. And no obstacle stood between them. Putting their friend in close proximity to Jesus was the only option. There was no size of crowd, no weight of the paralytic himself, no height of the wall, no thickness of roof. And even here's another. Not their own self-righteousness. They couldn't prescribe something by the law that they could do that could ultimately fix their friend or give him something. that They knew they couldn't heal him and no one else, no other thing, no moralist of rights and wrongs could do it. They had to trust Jesus and place their friend in front of him. Let me ask you. They trusted Jesus' authority alone, entirely, completely. Do you? Do I? Is that evident in our life? And is it evident by the way we place our friends who live apart from the Lord in close proximity to him, doing whatever we can? No obstacle too high, no crowd too big, no wall or roof too thick. We will carry them and the weight of all that is holding them under to place them in close proximity to Jesus. Last week, there was a, a percentage shared about the percentage of those that would respond if the church would just invite. I want to remind us of that. What are we doing to bring them to the place of hope? There's the response of the paralytic. The humble response of the paralytic who knows that he needs help. He is depraved. He is destitute. He can do nothing else. He's out of options. He cannot save himself and no one else outside of Jesus can either. He humbly allows his community to carry him and subsequently lower him to Jesus because he trusts Jesus alone and places his life in his hands under his authority and he's finally healed. Do you? Do you trust the love of Jesus can alone save you? His forgiveness and his healing can humbly come when we just admit humbly and cry out to him. You know, the beauty of this uh, his willingness to allow his friends also reminded me of a verse in um, scripture, Proverbs 27, 6, the wounds of a friend are trustworthy. The kiss of the enemy are excessive. How many of you have a friend or a group of friends that'll be honest with you? They love you enough to call you on your stuff. You know what I'm saying? How many of you have friends that, you know, blown sunshine up your skirt and they, you know, they just continue to, you know, let you be, pat you on the back. Maybe they flatter you. But then there are true friends. The true friends that go, your stuff is not too heavy for me. And you keep walking away when I keep trying to embrace you. How many of you are grateful for a love like that in your friends? Those are people that we need to honor as we turn to Jesus. For those in this room who, like the paralytic, need healing and know it, you are depraved to give nothing else. Today may be the day of salvation for you. I hope it is. I hope you look at the friend who loved you enough to bring you here and you honor them by turning to Jesus. The Pharisee, the prideful leaders who saw their glory and authority being taken from them directly before their eyes immediately seek to dismiss Jesus. They were skeptical of all that they saw and experienced and tried to argue it away as not of God even though it was impossible for them to do. And thus they missed out on God and the miraculous freedom of that life change that was evident in him. They held to their religious pedigree. 
They held to their self-made tokens of grandeur and missed out on life abundance, clenching their titles, gnashing their teeth. Unwilling to humbly submit their authority to his in pride, they died in their sin and self-righteous and, listen, their own self-worship. I hope not, but will you and I respond like him, white-knuckling the crown of our own life when Jesus said, if you will not lose this life for my sake, you will die in it. But anyone who will lose their life for my sake will find life. Maybe you're here white-knuckling the crown that you believe you are entitled to, or maybe it's just the pew in front of you. But maybe under the authority of Jesus today, you just let go. Let us not be found like the Pharisees, stiff-arming him, stiff him, trying to cling to some title and rob him of glory that we were never due. But there is a fourth response, and I'm going to point it out. It's the response of the crowd because the crowd was so big. It's the response of the crowd. The crowd was massive. It was huge because they were all amazed and they gathered to see what Jesus might do next. What magic trick would he do? Astonished by his miracles, they wanted a magic show. They were willing to be entertained by him, unwilling to submit to him. When Jesus presented the cost of discipleship, you know, death to self, they scattered. Church, I need you to listen. When Jesus presents the cost of discipleship, death to self, Will we be counted amongst the masses and not amongst the few? It's, it was their majority. It's today our majority. He, he enamored the many, but was actually embraced and followed completely by the few. How many of you don't want to be found amongst the crowd wanting? How many of you don't want to be someone who was just amazed by Jesus, but never in relationship with him? I don't want to just be astonished by him seeing what he might do next. I want to be in the midst of joining him like, like we were talking about a moment ago. Lynn was talking about serving. I want to see where he's at work and I want to join in that. Amen? I want to be utilized in that. I want to be a team player. I want to be grateful for the life I have that I didn't deserve. And I want to share it in hope with others. I don't want to be counted amongst the many. Because quite honestly, Jesus said... The road to destruction is wide. The road unto righteousness and to me is narrow. 